0: Well, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Aaron, a teaching pastor here for Riverwood. And uh, today we are actually concluding a series called His Story. This is actually the 40th message in this series. Never in my life did I think that I would do a message series where there would be 40 sermons inside of it. And yet I don't regret one bit doing it. Uh, the premise for the series has been that every page of the Bible points to Jesus. And I have thoroughly enjoyed this journey. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. And that rather than go in and dive into another passage and see how it also points to Jesus, we're actually going to kind of pause today and ask, how does your life point to Jesus? And to start us off, I want to tell you about a guy named Justin Coler. I assume that's how his name is pronounced. I haven't actually heard it. I merely read an article about him, but it really struck me this week. If you were to meet Justin, he would probably seem like just a very normal, typical American guy. He's married, has a couple of kids, lives in a suburb in LA, works a desk job for a software company. Nothing remarkable. However, last year, one of Justin's big secrets was revealed. It turns out that for three years, He ran the largest network of fake news websites. You've probably seen one of his websites and even read one of their articles. You see, Justin, when he was in college, got a political science degree. And he was particularly interested and fascinated by propaganda. He was was interested in how it would shape and influence culture. So when one day on his own Facebook feed... A friend posted an article. He went and read it. Something just didn't seem right, so he did some investigation, and it turned out to be false. Rather than be appalled at it, or rather than just kind of be apathetic and roll his eyes and move on, he drew upon his political science background, his interest in propaganda, and he became fascinated. So fascinated that he decided to attempt it himself. And he was good. Really good. He ended up starting his own little company called DisInfo Media. He created a fake persona for himself so that no one knew it was really him doing it. And at the height of his game, he alone was making $30,000 a month just on the ad revenue. He ended up employing about 20, 25 different uh, writers. He gave them permission to put uh, uh, like ads inside of their articles. And just off the ad revenue on their articles, some of these guys would make up to $10,000 per article. They were raking in the bucks. This led NPR to name Justin Collaire the king of fake news. Uh, Here's a couple of the headlines that they had on their site. Colorado pot shop to provide free marijuana to Syrian refugees. You know, just a little crazy, but yet just believable enough. Or, Or how about this one? City in Michigan, first to fully implement Sharia or Sharia law. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Sharia? Sh- sure. Sangria, Sharia, it, it all rhymes. It, it works. There was just enough in the articles that people believed them to be true. And so these things were spread faster than the common cold can go through my family. I mean, it just was viral. And so much so that they were making a ton of money just of ad revenue alone. Well, it all came crashing down. Uh, It turns out that some people began to investigate the fake persona that he created, discovered it wasn't a real person, and through searching, they discovered some guy named Justin Justin Collaire. And so some reporters showed up at his door, knocked, and said, are you Justin Collaire? And he said, yes, I am. said, we want to ask you about disinfo media. And he says, I have nothing to say, and shut the door. But eventually he realized, it caught on to me. And so he began to talk. And he admits that because the money was just coming in, he decided to milk it for all it was worth. All sorts of people believe that Justin and his writers influenced the election last year. They believe that their contribution through these fake news websites led to the really divisive political climate we find ourselves in. And yet, Justin doesn't really truly regret what he's done. He really sees himself as more like an opportunist than a villain. And he actually places the blame on the people who read the articles for believing what he believed was just absolute nonsense. Because he put a disclaimer on his website that then made all this legal. He he said, no, it's obvious. All you had to do is a little poking around and you'd realize none of this was true. And so he blames them for creating this issue as he continued to rake in the dough. In fact, Justin himself, said this, I have regrets, but people do worse things for money. I didn't do anything illegal. I just made some people mad. Look, I live in a very affluent part of the country and buying a house was always unattainable. Not anymore. It afforded a better life for me and my family. In other words, Justin is saying that the ends justify the means. He was making a lot of money. So what if he also made a lot of enemies? The author of this article is a guy by the name of Zach Crockett, and he wrote this. During the height of Coler's success, he was raking in $30,000 per month and affording a better life for his family. The trade-off? He had to sacrifice his morals, ethics, and dignity. This is Justin's story. Now, at his funeral, there'll probably be stories of him as a husband, him as a dad, maybe as a employee at a software company. But the story that most people are going to remember about Justin Collaire is a man who is willing to engage in questionable and unethical practices simply to make money. All of us are writing a story. Some, Most of us, our, our story has public parts, you know, like where you're from, you're, you know, who you're married to, how many kids you have, the types of jobs you've, uh, you know, held. I mean, like Justin, you know, husband, father lives in LA, you know, the public chapters. But all of us also have private chapters. These are the things that we don't really want others to know about. Maybe it's the mistakes we've made, things we're ashamed of. Maybe it was evil that's been done to us. And we, we don't want this story published for everyone to read. And so we keep it in the journal really, really close to the chest. Right now in Hollywood, a lot of stories are being changed. There's a number of people who, they were trying to write these public stories of, you know, a powerful producer, of a famous comedian, and an award-winning actor. But Hollywood is being upturned because of some stories that are coming out. Private chapters are being made public. And so now instead of a story of a powerful producer, you're starting to hear a story of a sexual predator. Instead of a story of an award-winning actor, you're starting to hear a story of a pedophile. These private chapters are starting to become public. And the type of story that they were trying to create of them as the good guy, it's now becoming them as the bad guy. See, your life is writing a story. And I actually suspect a few things about the story that you're trying to write. First of all, I suspect you don't want to be the bad guy in your story. Like, you don't want to be the sexual predator. You don't want to be the addict. You don't want to be the person who regularly loses their temper. You don't want to be the person who got fired from their job because they were stealing money from the company. Like, I I just suspect that inside, deep down, that's not the story you want to write. And yet, sometimes those are our chapters, I also suspect that for many of you, you really don't want your story to be the story where the main character gets up, goes to work, comes home, goes to bed, and it goes on chapter after chapter after chapter. Like, as you were a little kid, that's not the kind of story that you dreamed of living. Well, here's my thesis for today. I believe that God wants to write an epic story through you. I firmly believe that. God wants to write an epic story through you. But I'm going to warn you. For God to write that epic story, some things are going to happen. First, your story will probably end up being a lot more exciting than you ever dreamt dreamt possible. And that actually means it could be kind of scary. Like my story, never in my life did I think that I would be a pastor planting a church. Also, I'm going to warn you. Your story, some of those private parts, they're going to actually end up becoming public. And that right there alone scares a lot of people. But also, it means that God is going to have to write a whole new chapter that breaks you out of the lather, rinse, repeat pattern that you found yourself in. I believe God wants to write an epic story through you. But keep in mind, we've been in a series called His Story where we've been looking at how all of the Bible is really one story, the story of Jesus. And so with that in mind, it makes me realize that my thesis statement isn't complete. And so I need to amend it. What our thesis statement for today should be is that God wants to write an epic story through you, but to reach the pinnacle of that story, it has to happen through his story. God wants to write an epic story through you. And that story can only reach its pinnacle through his story. Since last January, when we moved into this building, we've been in this his story series. We started all the way back in creation and we proceeded to go through the patriarchs, different biblical characters. We looked at different stories. We looked at some prophecies in the old Testament, and then we eventually made it to the new Testament. And we looked at the message of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, as well as the sacrifice of Jesus. And that ended up leading into the establishment of the church in Acts and how it pointed to Jesus. And through the epistles until we reached last week, where we saw in Revelation that even the end of the book points to Christ. All of it. I mean, think about it. This story is so epic, it took thousands of years to be written. God wrote it through 40 different authors who wrote 66 different books of the Bible, and yet there is this consistent story through the entire thing, pointing at Jesus Christ, God the Son, who gave his life for us. This is a remarkable story. But Today, I don't want us going in one more time and saying, so how does this story point to Jesus? Today, I really want us, as we conclude this series, to stop and say, so how does my story point to Jesus? How does my story point to his story? And to help us do that, we're going to look at the story of a woman in John chapter 4, and we're going to see what happens when her story intersects with Jesus. So if you brought a Bible today, open it up to John chapter 4. If you're a first-time guest at Riverwood, we use paper Bibles as well as digital Bibles. So if you've got a Bible on your phone, it's no problem. Whip it out. We're not going to accuse you of surfing Facebook. I figure if you head to Facebook, it's because I'm really boring, all right? So no worries. Pull that out. If you don't have a paper Bible and want one, we have some back on our back table. Totally feel free to pick one up and just even take it with you. Make it your personal Bible. If you look around, you'll see a number of our church family that actually have a Bible that they picked up off the table, and that is now their regular Bible. All right, so John chapter 4. As you turn into John 4, let me just set the background. Jesus is in Judea with his disciples. Judea is the southern region of Israel, and he's decided to head back home to Galilee, the region that he's from. However, most people, when they would travel from Jerusalem up to Galilee, they would take this eastern road along the river. But Jesus, it says in verse 1, had to go through Samaria. He decides to cut right through the city. Now, that's odd because most Jews wouldn't take that path. Most Jews prefer the path around Samaria. Because it turns out that there was a lot of division between Jews and Samaritans. A, A lot of tension. First, there was racial tension. Uh, When Babylon invaded Israel, they kidnapped a bunch of the Jews, hauled them off to Babylon, but they left a scattering of people behind. Some of those people lived in Samaria. The Babylonians also would leave behind people who were pro-Assyrian, pro-the Babylonian empire, because then they would help to support the empire. Well, you've got some of those Babylonian people left behind. You've got some of these Jews left behind. There really isn't that many people to marry. So you start intermarrying. Well, when the Jews finally came back, they didn't find these other Jews remaining. They found these half-breeds. And so there is racial tension here. But there is also political tension. It, It turns out that when Israel was in a war with Syria, rather than help their neighbors, the Samaritans ended up helping Syria. And the Jews really didn't like that. So much so that they retaliated by destroying the temple of Samaria in, I think it was like 128 B.C., and so these two don't really like each other politically. But then there's also some theological tension going on. You see, the Jews believe that at feasts like Passover or Pentecost, you, you must travel to Jerusalem to participate and, and join in with the worship. But the Samaritan religious leaders were saying, no, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. We can stay right here and worship God on our own mountains. And so you've got racial tension, political tension, and theological tension. And so, because of that, many of the Jews would simply take the green line around Samaria. But on this particular day, Jesus decides to take the yellow line right through the heart of Samaria. They'd been traveling for a while. They reached this town called Sakar. And Jesus is probably a little tired, hungry, thirsty. And so he sends the disciples into town while he himself hangs out at the well. I think Jesus at this point is sending all of the disciples into town because he knows what's about to take place and he doesn't want Peter interrupting. And so he sends them away and says, all right, I'm ready. And here's what takes place. Join me in verse seven of chapter four. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Sorry, all that talk of water made me thirsty. So what we have here is Jesus hanging out by this well alone. And this Samaritan woman walks up. Jesus strikes up a conversation. I wish so much we had all sorts of time today to dive into this passage. I love the story here in John 4. There, it is filled with so much. I, I wish so much we could just take the time for you to see just how Jesus shows his love to this woman. Not like the love of these five ex-husbands in the current live-in. Like truly loving her. Uh, just how as, as a Jew to engage with a Samaritan, as, as, a, as a rabbi to engage with a woman. I mean, it's just, it just is amazing. But that's not our purpose today. Our purpose is to see what happens to her after she has this conversation with Jesus. Once her story intersects with his story. And it really gets going there when Jesus says, well, go call your husband. And she admits, I have no husband. And Jesus praises her and says, oh, you know, thanks for telling the truth. You're right. You don't. You have had five husbands and the guy you're living with now isn't even your husband. And at that point, she realizes, oh, my, like, my private chapters are now known. I- I've never met this guy in my life, and yet he seems to know something about me. This kind of puts her on edge. Could you imagine the awkwardness of it? And, and-, and so she suddenly tries to divert it. Like, okay, whoa, you, you must be like some sort of prophet. Oh, uh, okay, so you're a Jew, you're a prophet? Oh, theological conversation. Maybe I can shift things over there. That would be more comfortable. And so she starts into this whole debate of, you know, well, you know, we say we worship here. You say over there. And then Jesus gives a rebuttal. And she in that moment realizes, ah, okay, I'm not going to win this one. And so did you notice what she does? She tries to escape the conversation by saying this. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. So she reveals that there's at least one thing that the Jews and the uh, Samaritans agree upon. That is that there is a Messiah who's coming. Now, the Samaritans probably assumed that when the Messiah would come, he would say, you guys are doing a great job. Keep worshiping here on the mountain. While the Jews would probably assume that the Messiah would come and say, yes, you must worship in Jerusalem. They both thought they were right, but at least they agreed a Messiah is coming. Now she's hoping that this kind of says, well, you know, hey, who are we to know? You know, if we're right about the mountain, if you're right about Jerusalem, I mean, but we know when Messiah comes, he'll tell us to her end of argument. Now she can escape. She can get away from this weird guy who seems to know a little too much about her and it's out over. But Notice what Jesus does next. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He just revealed himself as the Messiah. If you go and read through the scriptures, you'll find all sorts of points where, like when he's going to, ex, you know, cast out a demon, the demon cries out, "I know who you are," and Jesus silences them, or or he goes and he heals someone, and they want to go and proclaim it to everyone. He's like, "No, no, no, no." Shh. shh. You see, I believe that Jesus wanted people to believe that he was the Messiah because of what he taught the things he did, not because of who he claimed he was. There were all sorts of people who came around claiming to be the Messiah. There's truly only one Messiah, and he wanted people to believe it by faith. And yet, to this woman, Jesus openly and boldly proclaims to be the Messiah. And she's this incredible outcast. I mean, she is unloved by the Jews because she's a Samaritan. She's unloved by her people because of her past. And she's unloved by at least five guys. And yet here's Jesus boldly and declaring, I am the Messiah. Because you see, by openly declaring who he is, he is inviting her into his story. He's inviting her to put her faith in him. This is a significant moment in the book of John. Later in his gospel, John, in chapter 20, verse 31, he writes that the purpose for his book, why he shared all these stories, including the story of John 4 and the woman at the well, was so that we, the readers, could believe in Jesus Christ, realize that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would find life in his name. He's talking salvation. And so when Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, he's inviting her to believe in him, to believe That he is the one from God. And by doing so, she finds life in his name. In other words, her sin is forgiven. All of her sin. Her her sexual sins. Her her sin of her self-loathing. The private chapters that she's kept close to the heart. All of it. Forgiven. That's why I think we see the woman react the way she does. I can't help but think that in that moment when Jesus said, I am he who you just said, I am the Messiah. I wonder if her mouth just dropped, if her heart began to flutter. I suspect that her hands began to shake because of what we see. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Christ. This woman has done some things that in her day and age were absolutely scandalous. Now, everyone knew her private chapters. I mean, the the women had gossiped about it at the well in the mornings when they would come to gather water. The the guys probably talked about it at the city gates. I mean, who knows? Maybe her ex-husbands compared notes. Like, everyone knew her story, and yet it was so scandalous. You don't talk about it. And yet, what does she do? She walks into town, and she starts telling people her private chapters. Why? Because when your story intersects with his story, you suddenly realize the love of God and how it can even redeem your private chapters. And suddenly, those private chapters no longer become about you and the mistakes you made or the sin that was done against you. It suddenly becomes about the love of God and the grace of God and how it crashes into those private chapters and even redeems them. That is why she can walk in there and say, he told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You see, Jesus wanted to write an epic story through her. She had been trying to write an epic story. She was trying to write a love story. Except it wasn't going very well. Because guy after guy after guy had rejected her. And the private chapters just kept piling up. And suddenly she meets a guy who doesn't love her for what he can get from her. He loves her because of who he is and what he's going to do for her. And her story's redeemed and she shares the private chapters. And now Here's even the more epic part of the story. Not only does she become redeemed, but notice what happens to her whole community that she goes back and tells. Go down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him, believed in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony that he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Even though there was a lot of racial tension, political tension, and theological tension, the Samaritans had still hung on to some of the Hebrew Scriptures. And they knew that these Hebrew Scriptures were pointing to a coming Messiah. And so they knew the stories, they knew the prophecies, so when Jesus shows up and hangs out with them and he starts preaching to them, they now believe and realize it's him. He's finally come. And they didn't just believe because of all that she said. They now believed because of what they heard. And they too believed upon his name and they found life in his name. Their sins were forgiven. They became Jesus followers. So the story became so epic. It didn't just change one person's life. It changed an entire community. This is what happens when your story intersects with his story. When the gospel crashes into your life, it not only changes you, but then it changes how you approach life. It changes how you approach marriage. It changes how you approach parenting. It changes how you approach relationships. And it even changes your story so much that you go and share your story. Because you suddenly realize that my story isn't about me. My story is now about this man named Jesus Christ. I love when we get to do baptisms at Riverwood. Because our our tradition here is that before someone gets dunked, they have to share. They get to share their story. And what I try to tell them and remind them is that when you share your story, you're really not sharing your story. You're sharing God's story through you because there came a point in life where they realized they needed Jesus and their eyes became opened and they suddenly let their story come into his. And the story of Jesus became the central part of who they were. And suddenly this gospel crashes into both the public and the private chapters. It becomes everything that they are. And so they go public with their faith and they get baptized. Today, I wanted you to hear some stories I want you to realize that this isn't just the story of some woman back in John 4. It isn't just a story that we hear occasionally when we have baptisms. Like, this is a story that many of you are living out. And so I've invited five of our church family to come and to share just a little bit of their story. Now, I've asked them to do the impossible. They're supposed to take a lifetime of living and reduce it down to just a couple of minutes, right? So if they don't capture it all, you can be forgiving. If anything, blame me. But I want them to share no matter how exciting it is or how humdrum it is, I want you to hear the story of what Jesus has done in them and through them. So with that, I'm going to invite the five people I've invited to come on up here. Go Miguel, and then let's see, Carrie, then Terry, and Janet, then Ed. All right? We got it. All right. Miguel, go for it.
1: Okay. Um, well, first of all, I grew up in church. Um, I grew up very legalistic. Um, So when I was growing up, I always saw God as a a being that uh, was waiting for me to do something wrong and then just uh, smash me down. Um, So when I graduated um, high school, the first thing I did was join the Army. There I go. Um, I'm running away. Uh, In the Army, I went wild. Um, I partied. I drank. I smoked. I um, and uh, but I was still miserable you know I didn't get away from feeling miserable uh, I did a lot of things I wasn't proud of I was still not proud of him um, Jesus didn't come to rub it in that I had you know that I had it didn't have it all together um he didn't you know uh, John 3:17 uh, God didn't come to condemn the world the world was already condemned uh, we were we're already fallen we're already inherently we don't have to learn to lie or cheat or steal or uh, we don't learn those things we know them we just gotta try to steer towards our better natures um Like the lady in the well, um, Jesus knows everything I've done, okay? Um, He also comes to me with no condemnation. He didn't sit there and and condemn her. If you look at it, he was just having an honest conversation with her. He wasn't sitting there telling her, calling her names or anything like that. Um, He was just trying to reach to her, you know, Show her that he was there. Um, eventually, I learned that God was um, wanted me to come to him for everything. Uh, I could come to Jesus when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and on and on. Uh, I can even come to him when I have problems with my unbelief. You know, there, there's that story of the father brings his son uh, to Jesus. And he says, "Well, all you need to do is to believe." And he says, "I believe. Help my unbelief, because I really want my son to be healed." Um, I remember when I first came to the Lord, I kept on asking Him to till my heart, um, because I had a very hard heart. I, you know, I was miserable. I was really hard. So you know, the the pro the whole. A parable of the, the sower uh, throwing seed. Um, I pictured my heart like gravel, and all that gravel picked out of it, you know, so that something could grow, something could take root in my heart. Um, I used to drink, I used to smoke, I used to curse. Now, because of Jesus, I'm, I'm a different person. You know, so it, it does show you know, it, it, I can say that it's not a lot of those things didn't happen overnight but Jesus is is my story he's the reason that I am who I am today
2: well when Aaron asked me to do this my overwhelming reaction was absolutely not I even told him that because <laughs> I don't do this sort of thing but um, And plus, I felt like I didn't have a dramatic or interesting story to share. Um, I was fortunate to grow up in a solid Christian home with strong Christian foundation, became a Christian, invited Jesus into my life at a fairly young age. So it's hard for me to pinpoint a major event or instance where I can say I was one person, Jesus did work in my life, and I became someone else. But then I realized that for my life, that's exactly the point. He has changed my life. By um, when I had kids, by teaching me it's better to let go of selfishness. He changed my life when he gave our family the opportunity to live overseas and experience cultural differences. That opened my eyes a little bit more to what Jesus means when he says he so loved the world. He changed my life every time I look at a situation with a practical view of life, or as my family likes to call it, pessimistic view, (laughs) by giving me the opportunity to look instead at the hope and assurances he is offering. None of these changes are complete. I still act selfishly, I still choose not to show love to everyone, and I still get discouraged and overwhelmed when I choose to ignore the hope he gives us. So in answer to Aaron's question, I can't really say that Jesus changed my life, and instead I'd say he is changing it. It's not a single act or even a series of active changes that Jesus worked in my life. It's an ongoing process of change, with him reminding me and giving me opportunities daily to be what I can.
3: I'd like to start by admitting I was as horrible a sinner as ever lived. There was nothing redeeming in me, and my mother still prayed for me. That used to make me really mad when she'd tell me she was praying for me I didn't care. So, my story really starts with a gift a gift of a living Bible that my mother gave to my wife and I, and we did read it. Jackie was moved that she wasn't raised where she ever heard anything about salvation or. Christ dying for you. She didn't understand it, but I was raised in a church that preached that, but I just didn't grab hold of it. And that night we had a conversation about salvation. I was able to explain to her, you know, Jesus died for you, you got to believe in him. But That's all I did was I believed the story was true, but I didn't have any experience about it. So I went to sleep later on and I woke up in the middle of the night just like a big finger pushing me on the chest. And there wasn't a voice speaking to me, but I knew it was God saying a question to me. He says, you know about salvation, but what are you going to do about it? And I had never really thought about it that way. And I thought, knowing who Jesus is, you know, I knew about Him. I thought that was good enough. I was good to go. Go do whatever you want to do and live life as you want to. And so I got to thinking about it, and the Holy Spirit convicted me to save Christ that night, to give Him my life. And He showed me that it's not knowledge. You can be full of knowledge and know everything, but till you put it to use, till you make a commitment to Christ, and you're willing to keep getting up every time you screw up, mess up, fall down, and get up and grab Him and hang on, it's that commitment that makes a difference. And a relationship, he wants you to know him. And as you go through these mistakes, you get to know him. You get to feel him in your life. Somebody says, well, how do you know him? When you accept Christ, you can feel it. You know it, the difference that he makes in your life. I mean, it's—it's receive him and you'll find out. Just, Just say yes. He'll take care of all the rest. And he's given me the strength to get through struggles. I mean, we all have them. I'm not any different than any one of you. But he said his grace is sufficient. He told Paul that. He says my grace is sufficient for any situation that comes. So I've come to the conclusion in life that by knowing Christ, God's will will never lead me where his grace can't keep me.
4: Growing up, I was pretty lonely at home. I was alone most of my childhood, elementary through high school, day not... Um, with really no one to interact to unless I was out with my friends. My folks took us to church occasionally while I was young, but never after age 12. In high school, I started going to church with some friends um, that I knew and spent a lot of time reading my Bible looking to ease my loneliness. One evening, I was reading in Romans 10:9 the verse that says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. At that moment, I prayed for salvation, and I believe I received it at that time, but I had no follow-up, no teaching on what it means to be a Christian. When I went to college, I started hanging out with the wrong people, and my life started a downhill spiral. So I joined the Air Force to get away and to start over. One day, a good friend of mine shared the bridge with me and asked me where I stood. I didn't answer him, but after some time alone and prayer and Bible study, a few days later when he asked again, I told him I stood on God's side. He immediately dragged me over to his friend's house, introduced me to his friend's wife, a beautiful Christian woman who mentored and discipled me for the next two years, teaching me everything I needed, all the ways to get to know and build a relationship with God, how to serve God. Through a career in the military and a second career in law enforcement, through experiencing Life and culture in numerous countries on four different continents, only God has kept me centered. Through marriage, through divorce, through single parenthood, he became my strength. I came to love God for who he is and what he does and what he has done for us. He has given me guidance when I needed it, protected me from so many things, even before I realized that he was doing it for me. He has intervened to make his presence known and help me through difficult times and situations. It's good to know when I'm stressed or upset I can turn to Him and He gives me peace. And as long as I know He is in my life, I am never alone.
5: I had a very stable childhood. Uh, nuclear family, 2.5. You know, the pet, And uh, didn't really do a lot of dangerous things uh, until I got older when I encountered real freedom in, in my life. I packed a lifetime of evil into a number of years. Um, my background isn't... It's not clean I mean, whose is. Um, but Christ has brought accountability into my life. The reality of His life demonstrates my own courses of action at every turn. With its example available to me, I can see the way to conduct myself in the world and to reach out to it while not becoming a part of it. The temptation of using the world as my standard is a constant push inward on my behavior. But Christ's grace under pressure approach to the world around him shows me I must be changed within by him before I engage the world. He has brought a patience to my day that I did not know before him and shown me where and when to stand firm on an issue or idea. Changing my own nature over time, As I learn more about his Uh, personally in my work I often encounter younger people enthralled by what the world can offer them and I'm privileged to be able to show them even for a short time a way to invest eternally in others and themselves and to foster conversation that hopefully stirs in them curiosity in Christ I also have been changed regarding the dollar Uh, Christ has shown me uh, the freedom that exists in life when the pursuit of money does not drive the day His presence over time has given me license to trust His will each day and know that my life according to His will results in a satisfaction and contentedness that I could not have achieved on my own. And for me, this is a process that continues on still. I can't trace it to any one single event, though there are several people and places that have brought me to where I am today. And I pray that those continue to happen for me because I'll never be to the standard that I have in Christ. You just heard five epic stories.
0: Now, if I were to share my story, it sound a little bit like Carrie's. You know, my mom and dad became believers shortly after I was born. So I grew up in a Christian home, heard about Jesus. My dad says at age four, sat on his knee, prayed a little prayer. In the eyes of the world, my story is pretty undramatic. And a couple of those other stories, you may have been thinking, okay, no big deal. But that's listening through human ears. That's reading that story through human eyes. If you read through spiritual eyes, if you listen with spiritual ears, you suddenly realize that those stories are epic because each and every one of them just pointed to something that only God can do. Only God can save. And if that is part of your story, you are already living an epic story. But if you're allowing some private chapters to hold you back, I want to encourage you, let them go. Let the gospel seep into those chapters and redeem them. If you've allowed yourself to get caught into just a, a repeated pattern of life, where you're just going about day by day and Christ is not crashing into it, I want to encourage you, let him in. Let the scriptures speak into your heart. Get with some other people who will remind you of the gospel. Find moments to worship. Get out there and serve. And let God then do something in you so he can also do something through you. Because he did not put you on this planet simply to just go through the days living for self. He put you here for his glory and for your good. And he wants to use you to be a blessing to others. He wants you to tell your story. So if you're here today and you're a Jesus follower, I want to encourage you, let this story be the central part of who you are, and may you go and tell it to others. But if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, you have a story. I would just love for you to let Jesus be the central part of that story. Today could be your well. You're suddenly hearing a conversation But now instead of me just up here talking, you realize it's the Holy Spirit talking. It's Jesus saying, I am He. And He's inviting you to put your faith in Him, to believe in His name. And when you do, the scriptures say that you find life in His name. Your sin is forgiven. You are reconnected to your Creator. Everything changes on the spiritual level. So I invite you to make that decision, to step into the story, and let Jesus be the center of who you are. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And in that prayer, I'm going to create space for you to talk to God. And I'm going to give you a chance to say to, something, to him something like this, God, I realize that I am a sinner. And yet, Jesus, you died on a cross for the, to forgive me of that sin. And so because, Jesus, you gave your life for me, I now want to give my life to follow you. So let's pray. Jesus, I believe that you lived the most epic story that anyone could have lived. How you, being God, came down and took on human flesh to live a sinless life and yet go and die in a sinner's place. You allowed the wrath of God to come fully against sin, and you bore it all for us. That is such amazing grace. That is such lavish love that that story should change our stories. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who know that this is their story. And I pray that each and every one of us would just come back to you and will continue to allow you to use us for your glory. Lord, I pray for anyone here that does not know you and they're sensing you whisper to them that you're inviting them into your story. You want to change who they are that you can write something even greater. Father, I pray that you would hear them right now as they pray. Father, I thank you for the moment that we're about to enter into, that as we sing how great you are, that you alone are able to change us, to save us, to, to redeem even the private parts of our story. That as we take of the communion elements, we're declaring the story of Jesus, the one who allowed his body to be broken for us. His blood was shed for us. Father, help us as Jesus followers to declare this story to the end of our days. And that we would not be afraid to share our story, no matter how exciting or humdrum they may seem. Because it's an epic story of what you have done in our life and what you have done in history. So Father, as we come now, we do this now in remembrance of you.